Welcome to the Short Fuse podcast. James Baldwin once said that artists are here to disturb the peace. Through our Short Fuse conversations, we engage with artists, writers, musicians, and individuals who have a lens on what is happening in the liminal space we find ourselves working through. We reflect on and interpret the role of the arts in transforming and bringing our communities together. I am Elizabeth Howard, your host. I began hosting and producing the Short Fuse podcast during the pandemic years. Those were days when we were all shuttered in our rooms, feeling displaced and disoriented. Since those early recordings, we have produced 33 conversations, created a YouTube channel for an online Short Fuse reading group, and held live events in New York at P&T Knitwear, in Boston at the Harvard Bookstore, and at the Portsmouth Athenaeum in New Hampshire. You can find all of our conversations on the Short Fuse podcast website or on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or through the Arts Fuse, the online journal of arts criticism and commentary. It's difficult to describe the Short Fuse. It doesn't fit the description of a traditional podcast by intention. That's why I fall back on the words of Lawrence Ferlinghetti, writing in poetry as an insurgent act. I am signaling you through the flames. The North Pole is not where it used to be. Manifest destiny is no longer manifest. Civilization self-destructs. Nemesis is knocking at the door. What are poets for in such an age? What is the use of poetry? The state of the world calls out for poetry to save it, a voice in the wilderness. Lawrence Ferlinghetti, Poetry as insurgent art. We hope the short fuse is a voice in the wilderness. Thank you for listening. As we slide down to the end of 2023, I'm with Alex Waters, who is the technical producer and editor of the short fuse and my partner throughout the last couple of years. We're at the Del Area Cafe on 111th Street in East Harlem. It's a lovely street just off Third Avenue. And Del Area actually roasts Italian coffee. It's open every day for breakfast until five o'clock, a charming atmosphere that attracts people who come here to work or enjoy a conversation with friends. But I guarantee you a wonderful cup of coffee and wonderful pastries. There's something about this East Harlem neighborhood that feels authentic, uh, that is like the old New York. And interestingly, authentic is the Merriam-Webster word of the year, which was announced last week. I actually think my word would be disruption, but Merriam-Webster selected the word authentic in a nod to the rise of artificial intelligence and a spread of misinformation on social media platforms. So Alex, what do you think? Mm, I think that authentic and disruption are both good words. Um, Something I also found interesting was the Oxford word for the year 2023 is riz, which is a shortened version of the word charisma. As a young person, Alex, are you concerned at all that... In, in the future, you could be replaced in, in some of the things that you do because of artificial intelligence? That's a brilliant question. <laughs> so as I listen to people uh, talking on podcasts or in passing, a theme that I do notice that comes up around artificial intelligence is 
while there probably will be a lot of jobs that are replaced, the people that are able to maintain their position and even take it further would be people that can learn and figure out how to leverage the artificial intelligence to do things that they couldn't have done in their previous capacities. Mm -hmm. So for example, if someone's a copy editor, there are numerous platforms that can automatically do copy editing, but they lack human sensibilities. Mm -hmm. So in one sense, it's easier for AI to do a big batch of work, whereas it would take someone a long time to do that themselves. But what a copy editor can now do is they can look at that batch of work that gets done and spend less time tweaking and modifying words and, and grammatical things. Mm. They can actually now focus on the larger aspects and they can make their time more valuable because they now have more bandwidth to do bigger picture things. Now they're adding value to their role. So there's two ways to look at it. The way that I would look at it is I'm trying to leverage these tools to give me more time to do what only I can do on a project. Mm. When I was thinking about words, then I thought there's always a color of the year. So I wondered what was the color of 2023, which is actually announced at the beginning of the year. So that would be last January. Mm. And it's magenta, Viva Magenta, mm. because they described that color, Pantone described that color as being powerful and, and empowering. Mm. But I thought that it was actually appropriate when we think of the wildfires and the wars. Mm. It's a, something bold, and we certainly had many things happen this year. That's why I look at the word disruption. And I thought, Alex, let's look back at some of the episodes and the conversations that we had this year. Mm. One of the ones that people really loved was my conversation with Kyle DeCunion, who's director of the Poetry Project. Mm -hmm. The title of that was unfamiliar territory. I think in this environment, we need poetry. There's so much that we're reading that's technical and difficult and frightening. Yeah. And there's something about poetry that helps us through this. Yeah. Let's listen. I was just really drawn to the ways that poetry activated something in me without understanding. I could have an emotional response to the poem without requiring my surface level conscious understanding of it. We all have so many habits and obligations of language that we need to attend to during a day. So even in my poetry administrative job, most of my day is responding to emails and filling out grant applications and coordinating different aspects of production. I'm sort of revitalized by poetry because it undoes those models of requirement. I like the Eliot suggestion of a superseding as opposed to an active countering. I, I think that poetry out of necessity comes from some place that surprises us. We are not in control of poetry. Poetry requires some kind of unbridling. I don't think that. I chisel the poem into being. I think I'm trying to undo all of my inclinations to control, to let something else happen. We also did the conversation with Diane Glancy, who wrote the book Line of Driftwood, about Ada Blackjack, the woman who was left out with these explorers, and Diane found her diary when she was rescued 
and Reflections from Turtle Island, the conversation with Joshua Whitehead, the poet and essayist. And I thought that was very beautiful, his, his writing as, as a two-spirited Native American who's now teaching at the University of Calgary. Mm-hmm. Beautiful, beautiful work. We also, we did a lot around South Africa. The mm. South African government has opened a cultural center in New York, and there's so much music, literature, fashion that comes out of South Africa. Mm. We think of Hugh Masekela and J.M. Cotis and Damon Galgut and Nadine Gornimer and Nelson Mandela. And we've done several conversations with Zox Emda, the writer and artist, Justice Malala, mm-hmm. the author of The Plot to Save South Africa. We had a conversation with Johnny Steinberg, who's the author of Winnie and Nelson, Portrait of a Marriage around Nelson Mandela with Justice. Mm-hmm. One of our early episodes was with Naledi Masulu, who's a young South African jazz vocalist. But I thought the one that I go back and listen to every once in a while is what we did around Desmond Tutu, when Desmond Tutu's memorial was held at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine in January of 2023. And Michael Curry, who is the bishop of the Episcopal Church in the United States, spoke. And I, I just thought his words about Reverend Tutu help us through some of what we're dealing with today. That voice of that little man. Remember how little he was. Before I met him the first time back in the 80s, I just knew he was as big as LeBron James. (laughs) And he was bigger than that. And that voice, light is stronger than darkness and life is stronger than death. Love is stronger than hatred. I remember as a young priest and we drove to Columbus to hear Archbishop Tutu. And I don't remember his entire sermon, but I remember the context. These were the dark days. The memory of Stephen Biko and the other martyrs was fresh. These were the dark days when police were killing young men and people were disappearing in the middle of the night. These were the days when, as James Weldon Johnson said, hope unborn had died. With these or similar words as best I can remember, he ended it by saying, I believe that one day my beloved South Africa will be free. I believe that one day she will be free for all of her children. Black, brown, colored, white, Asian, all of her children. I 
believe that one day my beloved South Africa will be the land of all the rainbow children of God. I believe it. I haven't seen it. But I believe it. Because I believe in God. Such powerful words, such powerful words of imagining a world that could come together. And that's one of the reasons that I was so interested in Justice's book and the, the 10 days after Chris Hani, who had been very close to Nelson Mandela, was assassinated. And it was thought that this would probably end any possibility of ending apartheid mm. and bringing people together in South Africa. And yet Nelson Mandela's words were able to help calm things down and bring people together. Because of COVID and because of people getting uprooted and their lives changing drastically, I think it gave people this space that we all needed to look internally and to understand why are we doing the things we're doing? Why do we think that certain things are important? What actually is important to us? Why do we work as many hours as we work? The world at large was given space to really grieve the things they were doing before COVID that they may not have wanted to do. We've done a lot with social justice, Alex, mm -hmm. and I know you you felt as I did. One of the things that Valina Beatty, the author of the book Manifesting Justice, writes about is this woman, Tasha Shelby, who has been in prison, was given a life sentence when she was very young accused of murdering her two-and-a-half-year-old stepson through shaken baby syndrome. And in 2017, in fact, the medical examiner who had said absolutely that was the cause recanted. And now on the child's birth certificate, it says natural causes. But Tasha's still in prison. She's a 48-year-old woman. Oh. And she called in on the phone and we recorded her. Let's listen to that. When does all of these factors add up to enough to say to someone, this is a conviction that is wrong and we have to write it? When is enough enough for this? And I think that's where I'm just more and more confused, heartbroken and mad, if I'm being honest. Like, when is enough enough? We've also had conversations with Helene Flowers who was given two life sentences as a super predator and put in a male prison when he was 16 years old and is now out and an artist. And we had a wonderful conversation with him, which I encourage you to go back and, and listen to. And we looked at Mark Goldberg's book, Madison Avenue to Rikers Island, about the program called GOSO that he started to help those people who are released from prison and come out with almost nothing. If only we could get past this cycle of poverty, inequity, all a result really of uh, systemic racism. Mm. Yeah, it's a big thought, it's a big thought. So I probably would not have been aware of these things had I not been privy to your conversations with these people, Elizabeth, mm -hmm. on the podcast. And I feel really blessed that I got to hear those conversations in real time and then hear them again as I was editing. The conversation we had with Tasha Shelby was particularly moving to me. And I don't think I knew this before you just said it, 
that the child's death certificate now says natural causes, whereas before it didn't say that. And yet, Tasha is still in prison. When I reflect on that, I mean, I feel upset on a general level, and then it seems frustrating to hear about that. And it also feels like I'm not sure what I would be able to do to create change there. I'm having a lot of feelings about that, and I'm having a lot of feelings. I had a lot of feelings when she initially called in, but I do feel very blessed to have been a part of that conversation, to hear what she was expressing on the phone, how she was feeling about still being in prison, when the reason why she was initially there has been basically revoked. Mm -hmm. Podcasts like the one that we do, it's very important. And for someone like me, my tendency can mostly be to be in isolation and not listen to what's going on around me and not turn my eye to reading about things going on in the world. So I feel really blessed that I kind of had to pay attention to this because I was a part of, uh, I was a part of the process of bringing those things to light on our podcast. And finally, our most recent conversations have been around literary criticism. And it really gets to the issue of, in a democracy, you want to have conversation and dialogue. Mm. And when you look at criticism in its essence, it is uh, responding in your own judgment, mm. not necessarily saying that something is right or wrong, but rather what ideas are valid and perhaps ideas that aren't valid or how they could be amended. And we talked with two people, Ann Shelberg and Bill Marks. To me, the important thing is to have magnitude of thought, sustained reflection, demonstrable argument. This is why I'm interested in doing book reviews because I think it's a way of connecting immediate written culture like newspapers and magazines with something that's enduring and that can endure the test of time. I think articulating what we care about in the arts is directly connected with the conversation we have about politics. Directly connected. Because we just have opinions, thumbs up and thumbs down for what we like and what we don't like in the arts, I see a direct connection with that diminution or that decay of the lack of being able to articulate value to how we talk about politics. We can't even argue, we can't even argue substantially about Barbie. And we're asked somehow to be able to substantially argue about what's going on in, in our political scene today. I thought it was interesting and kind of funny that Bill mentions people having a hard time having discussions about the Barbie movie, which I actually saw. I don't really like the movie. And I walked out of the Barbie movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I didn't tell you that, Alex. Yes, I walked out after (laughs) probably 25 minutes. So Bill saying that did make me think about how important it is to have conversations about art that we're seeing, like the Barbie movie, or like an exhibit in a museum or a news piece that spark conversation and to be able to think critically about what's going on around us. So like for me, if I don't think critically, Mm -hmm. I tend to not make changes and it's clear to me from my perspective that when things start being done differently mm-hmm. things start changing so the more aware we can become about what's going on in the world and being aware of what art is commenting on the more we'll be able to maybe cause change in areas that need to have change caused in them Alex you're from 
Athens, Georgia. Very different from New York City. Yeah. And you haven't been here very long. Have your ideas about things been shifted? Yeah, definitely. The first apartment that my wife and I lived in was in East Harlem during COVID, so there weren't as many people on the streets as there are now. But we were exposed to quite a lot of just different people, like running errands, um, going to the grocery store, walking down the sidewalk, things like that. Something that I really, really enjoyed, though, was getting to see what other people valued, which was sometimes very different than what I did. So it, it really gave me a chance to um, to pause and just see what other people celebrated that maybe I could also celebrate or just things that they saw valuable that I could also see valuable. The first month that we lived here was July. And I did not know this before experiencing it, but it seems like the whole month of July is the 4th of July celebration. So there's fireworks every night. But I'm glad I got to see how other people celebrate things and Sometimes a time of celebration is shorter for me and it's longer for others. So it just gave me this broader sense of what is valuable to people and maybe things that I should take a second look at. I definitely changed my mindset about a lot of things. So if one day you move back to Georgia, would you bring that kind of attitude with you? Oh, yeah. Do you think it would be hard uh, if you're bringing up you're so young, and if you have a family and, and bring up a family in Georgia, would you bring what you've learned uh, living in an urban international environment, the upper center mm -hmm. of the world, as we say about New York? I definitely would. Though, I don't want to gloss over how difficult it can be to go back into the place where you're from and bring all the learnings that you've done since you've left that place. So I definitely would want to bring a lot of those thoughts home, but I would want to do it in a way that's graceful and understands that sometimes people won't have the same experiences that I do, but I would want to share with the intention of broadening people's perspective. One of my favorite conversations last year was with uh, Jasmine Rice Labeja, who is from Korea and graduated from Juilliard with a degree in opera and is a drag queen. I met Jasmine when he performed at the Guggenheim and gone to one of his performances at brunch in New York. Mm. Let's just listen. I think the most important part for anyone who's not familiar with drag or drag performers is that we are performers. I don't understand how wearing giant lashes that reaches my eyebrow and pounds of makeup is somehow sexual to anyone. If you look at Mrs. Doubtfire, people love Mrs. Doubtfire. Robin Williams was a drag queen. He put on makeup, full-on breasts and hip bodysuits. I mean, granted, he dressed up as an old woman who's a housekeeper. To them, that wasn't sexual because he was dressing up as a comedian, as an old woman who takes care of children. And so in my mind, when you're making these kind of general ideas or when you don't look at us as performers, but you look at us as some kind of sexual object, what's going on in your head that you think me wearing a synthetic giant 10-pound wig <laughs> and yards and yards of fabric covering my body somehow equates to something sexual and you create laws against it? And I think when we think of people like Jasmine and 
the writers we've interviewed and the people we've talked with, they're the people who can help us through this transition. We're definitely going through, as you said, Alex, it's, it's a time of such change and we need young people like you <laughs> and we need artists, writers, musicians, choreographers helping to interpret the world uh, through their own vision and through their own voice mm. so that we, we can create a world that is vivid and bold, <laughs> is magenta, <laughs> and perhaps has its own authenticity. It's wonderful working with you, Alex. Likewise, Elizabeth, thank you. And I've enjoyed this conversation. Me too, for sure. I would like to thank Alex Waters, our technical producer, for his commitment to The Short Fuse, and Bill Marks at The Arts Fuse for his financial support. The Short Fuse can be found through The Arts Fuse, the online journal of arts commentary and criticism, and through Apple, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. If you have enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe. You can support us through the Short Fuse podcast website. A link is in the episode notes. Follow us on Instagram and through LinkedIn. Join us next time when we engage, explore, and ask questions.